And as you're taking your seats, uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 22. As you're turning there to Acts chapter 22, um, I wonder if you've heard of this word, a glossophobia. Glossophobia uh, or speech anxiety is often what it's coined, is the fear of public speaking or of speaking in general. The word glossophobia comes from the Greek word glossa, which means tongue, and phobos meaning fear or dread. And it's interesting, did you know that the number one fear in North America is glossophobia? Second to death. I just want, that's a commentary on our culture and our society. Just think about what that means. The vast majority of people are more fearful of doing what I'm doing right now than of dying. That is a sad commentary on our culture. Well, I get the fear of public speaking, and I know that that's a real, real challenge for a lot of people, and I appreciate that. I think the church, in one sense, has a much bigger problem. The church's biggest problem is not a fear of public speaking. I think in many ways in our North American culture, the saddest commentary on the church is that there is a greater fear of speaking for Jesus Christ. There is a, maybe what I can coin this morning a Christoglossophobia. As Christians, we need to realize that this cannot be characteristic of us because the Word of God tells us that to be a follower of Christ is to be someone who not only imitates Him with their life, but stands to proclaim Jesus Christ. As those who've been bought and purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we are now brought into the mission of God and the mission of the church, which is to stand and to be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, to speak the truth of Jesus Christ, to put Him on full display in all of his glory. So Christians need to be challenged. I believe even my own heart needs to be challenged on what it means to speak for Christ. He is to be, after all, our most treasured possession. He he is the gift of all gifts, the gift that we have received by the grace of God, and he is the gift that we are supposed to offer to the world around us. We offer him to the world because he is their only hope. He is the only hope of salvation, the only hope of forgiveness, the only hope of freedom, the only hope of true life. And I'll be the first to admit that it's not always easy to take a stand and to speak for Jesus Christ. We live in an especially hostile environment when it comes to taking a stand for Jesus Christ. But I can tell you this, it is absolutely necessary It is the calling of the church of Jesus Christ. It's necessary for Christians to take the stand and declare with unwavering confidence the truth about Jesus Christ. The question for us this morning is, what does that look like? Do we we have a snapshot of that in Scripture? And the answer is yes. There are countless snapshots of what it looks like to stand with unwavering confidence for Jesus Christ The Apostle Paul gives us a powerful one this morning, and what we can do as we look at his example is we can begin to ask the question, how can I do this? How can this become a part of my life? How can I be a Christian who takes the stand for Jesus with unwavering confidence? And Paul really lays out for us a map of what it means, or what it looks like rather, to share your faith with somebody Of course, there's a variety of different ways this can take place. There's not a one-size-fits-all approach, but here is an approach that we see clearly in Scripture that we can grab onto and we can implement, I think, in many ways in our own lives. 
Let's begin first by reading part of the text. Acts chapter 22, look with me at verse 1 through 5. You might back up to verse 40 of chapter 21. We'll get a running start. It says, when he had given him permission... Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, But brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who are there, and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Note this first, that to take a stand for Jesus with unwavering confidence means that we must first make the personal connection. We must make the personal connection with others if we're ever able to have an impact on them. If we want them to hear really, and to be connected to the gospel, it's imperative that we see that we need to make the effort to try as best as we can to make a personal connection to the people we're trying to minister to. For Paul, there was a very easy connection. Remember the context. Here's Paul. He's in Jerusalem. He's been brought there after he's finished his third missionary journey. He comes bearing a gift to the Jerusalem church, a monetary gift to help them out as they've been in crazy poverty Unbelievable persecution for being a follower of Jesus Christ. But when he gets there, there's some controversy that arises over Paul himself. The the Jews are slandering Paul. They're saying he cares nothing about the law. And even the Jewish believers are beginning to think that Paul is advocating something that he's really not. And so Paul has gone to all this effort to try and disprove the Jews, to show that he's not calling even Jewish Christians to simply abandon the law. It still has value. It doesn't lead to salvation, but it still has value. He's done everything he can, and nothing's worked. And right now, he finds himself standing up. He's asked the Roman officials if he can, he begged them, the text tells us before this, to have an opportunity to stand and to proclaim before the people the truth of the gospel. Now, remember what's happened. He's just been beaten for believing what he believes, for saying what he's saying. The very people he's been beaten by, he now stands up with compassion for their souls, irregardless of the pain he's in. He looks at them, and he wants to connect deeply with them. And so essentially, he says, look, I was just like you. You want to talk about a connecting point? He looks at his audience, a group of faithful Jews. The text tells us a lot about them earlier on. They're zealous for the law. I mean, they think that Paul and Christianity has distorted the Jewish faith entirely. They think Paul is a blasphemer, that he needs to be put to death for what he's preaching. And Paul wants to simply stand up and say, don't you understand? You you Jews who love the law so much, your very law actually points to the Christ, the Jesus that I am worshiping, that I am proclaiming. Paul says, 
look, I'm, I'm a Jew just like you. In fact, I was born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but even more so, listen, I was brought up in this city, in Jerusalem. I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, I mean, the top rabbi, the rabbi of rabbis. I went to Harvard Rabbi School. He's like, I, I knew the law, and according to the strict manner of the law, look, of our forefathers, he was, says he was zealous for God as you are this day. There's the connection point. I was just like you. And in one sense, you want to know what he's saying? And Paul says this about his own life. I was like you, only better. And you think you're zealous for the things of God? You, thought you're, you think you're zealous for the law right now? I was 10 times more zealous than you. In fact, I gave my life to this. I was imprisoning people and beating people. I was on my way, journeying toward Damascus, he says, with a letter, as your authorities can tell you. I was commissioned to go out and to punish those, to bring them back and imprison them, those who believed in the way. That's a derogatory term that they were using for Christianity. Because Christianity, Christianity exclusively declared to be the way, the only way of salvation. Paul says, I, I was just like you, only better. Now, you need to see that Paul's zeal here in, in trying to make this connection is at the beginning here. It's non-confrontational, right? He, he's trying to diffuse the situation. They've already been angry enough, and he sta- stands up, and he speaks in their dialect. And so instantly, there's kind of this calm and this quiet as they begin to listen to him. And though they don't see it yet, he's really relating to them uh, on a fundamentally human level, not simply uh, as a, at a religious level as Jews, as faithful Jews, but more importantly, here's what he's trying to do. He's trying to relate to them so he can ultimately show them that they're related at a greater level. They relate to one another as human sinners. That's what Paul's getting at. He's not brought them there yet, but he's relating to them and helping them to relate to him with the hope that they will be able to hear the message. You know, part of connecting to people is learning to relate to people. I mean, we, we have a very relational uh, faith, don't we? I mean, the very nature of our faith is relational. It's a relationship with God. It brings us into the church, into relationship with one another, and it calls us to go and establish relationships so that we can make disciples. Everything about our faith is relational. And so we need to find common ground that oftentimes will diffuse situations and gain us a hearing. You might be familiar with the name John Newton. John Newton is famous for writing um, the hymn Amazing Grace. Before he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, he was a slave trader who was radically saved by the grace of God and turned his life around completely so that he became a pastor. At one point in his ministry, he was locked behind prison doors in the fall of 1975. It wasn't really a prison. It was more of a correctional institution for thieves. And he wasn't sent there, by the way. He walked in on his own volition as a 55-year-old pastor. Newton entered this facility with simply his Bible and with a very personal story of God's saving grace. He recounted the trip to a friend at a later time, and here's what he wrote. It's an extended quote, so just bear with me, but listen to how he writes to his friend about his experience. He said, you would have liked to have been with me last Wednesday. I preached at Westminster Bridewell. It is a prison and a house of correction. The bulk of my congregation were housebreakers, burglars. 
highwaymen, which are robbers on horseback, pickpockets, and poor, unhappy women, such as infest the streets of this city, sunk in sin, and lost to shame, that's prostitutes. He said, I had a hundred or more of these before me, and I preached from 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. And I began to tell them my own story. Here's what he says. This gained their attention more than I expected. I spoke to them near an hour and a half. I shed many tears myself and saw some of them in tears likewise. Ah, had you seen their present condition and could you hear the history of some of them, it would make you sing, oh, to grace, how great a debtor. By nature, they were no worse than the most sober and modest people. And there was doubtless a time when many of them little thought what they should live to do and suffer. Here's what he says, catch this. I might have been like them in chains, and one of them have come to preach to me, had the Lord so pleased. You know, the, the common ground we share with every human being is as a fellow sinner, isn't it? I think sometimes we're, we look at people and, and we think, well, they're so different from me, and I can't relate to their culture or their background or their life experiences, but one of the one thing we can always relate to people with is the reality that we were once sinners, right? Before Christ, this is who I was. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. I was lost and in need of a Savior, and some of us have different stories to tell, and that is, listen, in the grace of God, He redeems people from all different kinds of walks of life and ways of living, all different degrees of sinful past, but all of them the same become equal at the foot of the cross. I just think that this is such an encouragement to our hearts. When we look at Paul's example, when we think of Newton here, when we see this idea of just telling our story and explaining who we were, instantly it draws people in because they can connect with that. I also want to encourage you, listen, to let your past be a daily motivator to share Christ. One of the things that John Newton did throughout his life is daily he would reflect on who he was before Christ. He would reflect upon the, the kind of the, the awfulness of his life, the wickedness of his own heart, the things that he had done as a means, listen, of stirring his heart towards Christ, of remembering how gracious his Savior was to him. And it pushed him to go and Seek after the worst of the worst as the culture may see it. I, I want to encourage some of you too. Listen, whatever God has allowed you to go through before salvation, never view it as a waste. I can't tell you how many times I hear people who have come to faith maybe later in life and they'll look at me and they'll say, oh, it, it, was, it took so long, my life has been such a waste. Can you just dispel, I know what you mean and yes, our desire is to come to Christ as soon as possible, but can you just see that God maybe has a plan even in allowing you to come to faith later on in your life? Because he wants to take that mess of your life and he wants to show others through you and through your living and your example and your testimony that God can save somebody that sinful who's done that kind of sin, who's been to those kind of places. It's never a waste. It's just a matter of how we view it. And you need to view that past life. Some of us are so ashamed of our past life. Instead, we need to begin to view it as a bridge, listen, to connect with fellow sinners, to say, I've, I'm just like you. And sometimes, like Paul, we can say, I was even greater. I was the chief of sinners. I was the foremost of sinners. 
I'll tell you right now that that is a powerful connection point into the hearts of sinners. And here Paul is making this connection. He's saying, I'm just like you, I'm just like you. And he's gonna, he's gonna hit him with the reality of what had to happen to him. So listen, so with unwavering confidence, next do this, describe the painful confrontation. Describe the painful confrontation. Look what Paul says in verse six. He says, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Paul is literally, we know the story, we've, if you've been with us through the book of Acts, you know that Paul was on his way to persecute Christians, and you know exactly what happened. Here he fills in a little bit more of the details, and he's trying to be very specific. Here's what you need to grasp as Paul is telling the story. Pa- Paul adds different details here because he's being specific to his Jewish audience. Remember, these Jews are claiming that he does not adhere to the Old Testament, that he's thrown the Old Testament away, he doesn't value it. Paul's language here and throughout this entire passage is soaking in Jewish kind of verbiage. He is doing everything he can to show them that Jesus connects intimately with the Old Testament faith that they profess to have. He wants to demonstrate that in a powerful way. So he talks about... um, all of these aspects of his conversion experience in a way that would draw them in to understand the the very Jewish flavor to the faith that he is proclaiming. He's literally traveling down a road to Damascus, going to do what he thought he was supposed to be doing. He thought, by the way, in persecuting Christians, he was honoring the Lord. He thought he was doing God a favor in one sense. He thought he was kind of responding faithfully to the word of God. When in a moment, he is confronted both physically and spiritually on the road. He's stopped literally in his tracks. And we know, again, he fell to the ground. He hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The light, you'll notice, that blazes around him. Listen, this would have been a trigger point for any faithful Jew in their mind instantly when they think of a blazing light. You want to know what comes to mind? The Shekinah glory of God. Paul is saying that he was stopped on the road to Damascus by God himself. He was standing in the presence of God. And when he asked, listen, when he asked as a faithful Jew, who are you, Lord? He is asking, who are you, God? He's asking from a Jewish perspective. And the answer that comes back is what is so offensive to the Jews here, I am Jesus. See what he's doing? He's saying, don't you get it? Jesus is God, the one I serve, the one I proclaim And the one who is central to our faith is God in Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but you ever ever found yourself going the wrong way? Just traveling, going the wrong way? Men, do you know why we don't like asking for directions? It's humiliating, isn't it, to admit 
that you've been going the wrong way or that you don't know where you're going. There's a sense of pride in a man in particular, I think. I don't know why this is unique to us. It just is. Shame on us. Where we just feel like we, you know, to be directionally challenged is borderline sinful. And uh, it's certainly humiliating when we have to look somebody in the eyes and say, hey, uh, I think I might be lost. Can you help me out? It's humiliating to admit that we've been going the wrong way. Now, it's one thing, I don't know if you've had this experience, it's one thing to realize that you're, you're just a little ways off, right? Like, oh, no, you stop and be like, hey, do you know where this place is? I think I'm lost. Like, oh, that's just around the corner. You're almost there. Okay, that's not that bad. But it is incredibly humiliating to maybe realize that you are a thousand kilometers away from your desired destination. <laughs> uh, man, you went to the wrong state. How demoralizing would that be? But you see, that's what happens when we are confronted by the reality of Jesus Christ. We're confronted and we're going the wrong way. And listen, we're not just a little ways off. We're not just kind of around the corner from the desired destination. We find ourselves so far away. We find ourselves light years away from where we are supposed to be. He shows us that we have been going the wrong way, that we've been taking the wrong way. And he he reminds us that our spiritual map app is broken And it is a painful experience in the life of any human being who is confronted by the reality of Jesus Christ. There is a a sort of pain that comes in the initial stages of a conversion experience. It's painful because it's humiliating, listen, to be exposed when you think you've been going the right way, when you think you've been doing what God asks of you, when you think you've got life figured out and God shows up and he shows you that you're entirely off base. It hits us in our pride because we want to be responsible for getting ourselves right with God. We want to be responsible for finding the way back to God. That's one of humanity's greatest problems. We live in a world of people filled with all kinds of religions where man is simply saying, I can get myself back to God and I'm going to do it my way. That's why the gospel is such a confrontational reality. It hits people where it hurts the most, in their pride. You have to grapple with the truth and not sweep it under the rug. I have to answer these questions that are, are being proposed to me. I have to figure out how I, how I got so off course. And listen, the real reality when we're confronted with Jesus Christ is we're confronted with this. Listen, this is who I am, this is what I've done, and this is who I have to answer to. And you see, that's what happened with Paul here. He realizes all of a sudden he's been going the wrong way. He's standing before the God he thought he was serving, he thought he was worshiping, and he's standing before him now, naked and exposed, utterly humiliated, broken in pieces, falling down in the dirt on his face, totally exposed. It's always, listen, if you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you can, you can relate to this, I believe. It is always painful to see ourselves as we truly are. To see our sin exposed. To see, listen, if you're a Christian and if you're kind of in that conversion experience, listen, the the hardest part, the most painful part is to see what we have done to Jesus Christ in our sin. Amen? And isn't that the most horrific thing to come to the grips with that reality? This is what I've done to this God who created me and who loves me and has desired relationship with me and then I've just stomped all over him. But can you just see this? It's, it's a complete act of God's grace 
a complete act of God's grace because you cannot be mercifully saved until you have been painfully confronted. It is always, anytime your sin is brought to light, anytime the, the Spirit of God moves to expose sin in your life, oftentimes we fear it, we dread it, but you need to see that this is a kindness of God. It is an act of His grace that He would say, I love you too much to let you continue in your sin. And so verse 10 the response is so key here. And Paul said, uh, what shall I do, Lord? What shall I do, Lord? That statement in and of itself is one of the greatest statements of humility in the life of the Apostle Paul. What shall I do? God can confront us in a variety of different ways. At any given time, he can stop us dead in our tracks. The real key when you're confronted with the painful realities of your sin and what you've done to God is how will you respond? How do you respond? Do you respond in pride? You know, pride says, Lord, I'll fix this my way. I'll do this my way. I can handle this. I'll make things right. Humility says, Lord, what shall I do? I want to do it your way. You tell me and I'll respond in faith, trusting you. You know, sometimes in humility, we need to be led by the way, by the hand. Sometimes we just, we're so broken by our sin, we need somebody to take us by the hand and lead us where we can't go on our own. And I love the picture here. Here's Saul. He's blinded by this painful confrontation, physically blinded, and he has to be led by the hand by those who are with him. So here's this mighty uh, defender of the Jewish faith, persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ, now a broken, humble, blind man being led by the hand into a city, not knowing what is happening, not knowing where he's going and what's going to happen with his life. Can I ask you this this morning? Are you willing to have your sin exposed? Are you willing? And by willing, maybe I can press it a little bit further. Do you ask God to expose your sin? Some of us right now, right there, right there, that hit hard, right? The, the conviction that you just experienced by the Spirit of God, right? You don't, don't avoid that. Don't run from that, right? Because that means there's something in your life that needs to be exposed. There's something that you've been hiding. There's something that you've been wrestling with, and you've been trying to do it your own way, and God is saying, no longer can you do it your way. You need to do it my way. Are you willing to get help? I love the frailty of Paul and his brokenness. This is a great example of how we need to be. Sometimes we need to say, I need help. I need you to take me by the hand. I need you to show me what I need to do. I can't do this on my own. And are you ready to do it God's way? You know, sometimes God's way is more painful than our way. Actually, I would say almost all the time it is. Our way tends to avoid pain. Our way tends to try and paint ourselves in the best light. God's way leaves us exposed. And the painful road to reconciliation is often difficult, but it is what is required. Paul is demonstrating such unwavering confidence in his own testimony here. Describe the painful confrontation next. Do this. Explain the radical conversion. Explain the radical conversion. Paul begins now to explain what exactly was happening inside him. It says in verse 12 that in one Ananias, a devout man, again, just think of the Jewish language here. He's, trying to, he's talking to Jews. He's wanting to show them this is very Jewish. What I'm saying doesn't violate the word of God. It actually flows from the word of God. A devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. He came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. 
And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see, this is such Jewish language, listen, the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When God confronts us, you need to understand this in your own personal life, when God confronts you, it is for the purpose of changing you. God never says, hey, I got an idea. Um, Here's a mirror. Take a look at yourself. Here's all of the ugliness. You got that picture? Great. Just wanted to make sure you knew. That's never his goal. His goal is look in that mirror, see the ugliness, because I want to begin to work on you and to change you. I want to scrub that filthy face clean. I want you to look completely different. Radical conversion is described here by Paul, and it is depicted in a powerful way by God. You'll notice here the blindness was um, instructive. I, I think it's, there's a spiritual connection here that's being made. The blindness of Paul by the glory of God is symbolic, listen, of, rece- of the spiritual blindness that we're all in. Receiving sight in this moment is symbolic of what Paul is experiencing spiritually, receiving new sight, new spiritual eyes to see. You see that in verse 14? The sight here spiritually is very clear. He said, the God of our fathers appointed you, listen, don't miss this, to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth. God wanted you to know him, Paul. God wanted you to know the Messiah that he had sent. God wanted you to know that it was his plan to send Jesus Christ, the righteous one that was prophesied about all throughout the Old Testament, that he has finally come to redeem and save sinners. And God has appointed you to know this because he's got a special plan for you, Paul. What happens in this radical conversion, by the way, it's helpful to understand that this is more than experiential. I think a lot of times when people want to describe their conversion experience, what they want to lean on is more of an emotional, experiential experience. And while it is that, listen, it, it is objective as well. And I think it's so helpful to be reminded of this. This is important for developing unwavering confidence, so so follow me in this, okay? Our confidence derives not from an emotional experience, but from an objective reality, right? If you ride the waves of emotion in your spiritual life, that's just what it's going to be. Wave after wave, up and down. You, You can't trust your emotions. You can't lean on your emotions. We lean on objective realities in the Christian life. Here's what I mean by that. Look, you don't just, in your salvation experience, in your conversion, it's not just that you feel forgiven, it's that you are forgiven, amen? It's not that that you just feel saved, it's that you really are objectively saved by God. You don't just feel like you've been cleansed of sin, you are objectively, reality, definitively cleansed from your sin. That's our hope, isn't it? I mean, if every time I felt like I wasn't forgiven, or if every time I, if I had a dollar for every time I heard a Christian tell me, I just don't feel like I'm saved. We need to learn to lean on the objective reality of our faith. 
And by the way, that's what's happening here in the baptism, right? The baptism depicts the symbolic reality of what's taking place, right? It's not just about an emotional experience. It is a declaration. It is a statement. We are going under the water, and it symbolizes the death to our old self. We are raised like Christ was raised from the grave in newness of life. The water washing and cleansing, a symbolic picture of what has happened to us spiritually. We have been cleansed. That's the picture taking place here. And every one of us can say, if we're in Christ, I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was dead, but now I'm alive. And I believe that every conversion can be described by this simple word, radical. Radical. We love to classify different degrees of conversions, and I get some seem more radical than others, but can you just allow yourself to be reminded of this this truth? The fact that you were saved in the first place, your salvation, no matter how drastic it was from the life you were living, is a radical act of God's grace in your life. It is miraculous that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Don't ever forget that. It is nothing short of miraculous any time God saves a sinner. Why? Why? Because of what God does. Look at verse 15 and 16 again. For you will be a witness for him to every one of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Because the gospel takes what is filthy and damaged, what is broken and humanly speaking unfixable. He totally cleans it up. He absolutely purifies us. He makes us white as snow. He washes and cleanses us. Oh, listen, listen to what that means for you, Christian. Listen, he's cleaning you up. The God's what the gospel does, washing you clean from all of your sin, all of your shame, all of your guilt, all of your condemnation. Every single bit of it is taken care of on the cross of Jesus Christ. For something to be made clean, by the way, something else has to absorb the dirt, right? You think of a washcloth, you think of the dirty dishes that you need to scrub clean. Well, something else has to get on there and scrub it off, and it absorbs it, in a sense, into itself. And I want you to see that that's exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Just think for a moment of 2 Corinthians 5. Paul writes this in chapter 5, verse 20 and 21 on the screen there. He says, therefore... We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Why? Listen, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He absorbed, he took all of our sin upon himself. And then he absorbed, listen, all of the wrath and all the penalty that was ours on the cross, he absorbed it all. And then he graciously, in this great exchange, hands us the very righteousness of Christ for us to wear. See, how does this happen? It's very clear. Listen, look at verse 16, calling on his name. Calling on his name. Like baptism does not wash away your sins. It's symbolic. And if you just read this one verse and you ripped it out of its context, and and you didn't look at any other verses in the Bible on on baptism, maybe you could say, well, baptism actually washes and saves us. That's not what Paul believes. We've spoken on that countless times already. The, The emphasis here is on calling on his name. That is what leads to the washing away of sins, and that is what leads to our baptism, where we declare what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it. It only happens by faith alone. That's what calling on his name is, by trusting in Jesus Christ, the finished work of Jesus. 
I want to, I want to maybe encourage you with some points of application as we think about the gospel. It's a great time to just refresh our hearts and minds. And so I just got three, three quick points I just want you to, to meditate on even this morning. Because of the gospel, first, don't live in the shame of your past, but in the wonder of his grace. Because of the gospel, don't live in the shame of your past, but the wonder of his grace. Too many Christians this so often are living in the shame and guilt of their sin. They're living in the shame of what they've done in the past. And, and listen, our past needs to remind us of the magnificent grace of God. Right? That no matter, no matter how sinful we were, God's grace was greater still, amen? And this is what we need to dwell upon as Christians. We need to stop living in the guilt and shame of our past, and we need to start living in the magnificent grace of God that has been lavished upon us. I mean, you want to see, I, 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 I can't, can't grasp the idea of a grumpy Christian, okay? It just, it, it's incompatible with what it means to be a follower of Christ because a follower of Christ is somebody who realizes that they are unworthy of the gift of God's salvation, and yet he has lavished his grace upon us. That ought to make us the most joyful people in the world, amen? All right, well, let's start acting like it. All right, secondly, notice this. Because of the gospel, don't shy away from your past. Use it to give hope to sinners, Again, I, I, I personal experience in this, in, in talking to people, I don't want to let people in on who I was before Christ. I'm way too ashamed of that. When, listen, the example of Paul, Paul has, by the way, his testimony on full display in Philippians chapter 3. You think of David, who has the testimony of God's, say, of God's grace in restoring him from his sinful mistakes, just bleeding across the pages of Scripture for all of history. And here's what I want you to see. That did not strip these individuals of credibility in the eyes of people. That gained credibility because they were shown to be those who were radically sinful and mercifully saved. I just want to encourage you. When you think of your shameful past, use it. Redeem it for the glory of God. Show people, this is who I was, and by the grace of God, this is who I am now. The grace of God, this is what this reminds us too, by the way. This ought to make us the most humble people in the world and the most confident people in the world. You want to talk about having confidence in the Lord, right? Unwavering confidence. If the grace of God can save you, the grace of God can save anyone. And the more you know yourself, the more you know yourself. That to be true. No matter how dark or prevailing the sin, And that's good news for some of you in here who think that you are beyond God's grace. You believe that your past prevents you from receiving God's grace. You're just too sinful. The mistakes you've made, the things you've done. There's no way God could love me. There's no way God could forgive me. And I just want to encourage you. Your past doesn't prevent you from receiving God's grace. It's primed you for receiving God's grace. It's prepared you to know the wonders of his grace all the more. The more sinful your past, the more you realize the greatness of his grace. Use your past to give hope to sinners. Thirdly, because of the gospel, don't live for the things of the past. Live with new purpose. Live with new purpose. You were saved from sin. Yes, saved from sin, but saved to a new life, to a new purpose, to a new way of living. You were saved for a purpose, to go and to make disciples, to go and tell of the salvation that you have received. And I, I love this passage is so clear, right? In verse 15, you will be a witness for him. I'm saving you, Paul, with a new purpose. The one you persecuted, you will now proclaim the one you tried to destroy is the one you will now live to declare. And that's what happens with all of us who are saved. The things of the past, the things we live for, are no longer the things that can captivate our hearts. 
right, that, that can steal our affections. We can't live for the fame and the glory of this world. We must now live for the fame and glory of Jesus Christ. And maybe if I can just allow this passage to speak. Some of you in here, you're, you're not followers of Christ. And maybe, maybe this morning, I've been praying that, that there would be some who are just on the verge. You know, you're right there. You know God has been convicting you of your sin. You've been exposed to the beauty of the gospel. And you're, you're just almost there. And right here in this passage, I love verse 16. And now, why do you wait? Why do you wait? Like, there's an urgency here. If you've been confronted in your sin and you see the beauty of God's grace, right? why do you wait? Run to him. He stands like a father waiting for his children to come home, arms wide open, and he runs to you to lavish his mercy and grace upon you. Look to Jesus. Cast your full weight upon him. And don't wait. Do it now special moment. You don't have to pray a special prayer. You throw yourself at the foot of Jesus and you say, I need you. I'm a sinner. I desperately need you to save me. I believe in what you've done for me. See, it's when you do that that you can do this with unwavering confidence. Obey the clear calling. Obey the clear calling. Verse 17 through 21, as Paul is still unfolding his story here, he says, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles." When God brings a person to faith, he already knows how he will use them in his service. Sometimes, however, we are slow to understand the plan of God and perhaps even trying to resist the plan of God in our lives. Paul is, is immediately a force to be reckoned with when he's saved. He, he can't help but declare the truth. He goes back to Jerusalem. He begins to preach the gospel to anybody who will listen, but this incites anger from the Jewish crowds. He hears of a plot to kill him, actually. But Paul, in his, maybe his kind of, you know, maybe Christian immaturity, he's still somewhat young in the faith. He, he, he loves the Jews. He longs for the Jews to be saved. He desperately wants them to embrace Jesus Christ. He wants to stay there and preach. And you can see him. He, he has this wrestling match with God. It took this word from the Lord as he's praying, he falls into this trance, and God actually has to speak to him supernaturally and persuade Paul to leave. And even as, as Jesus says, you need to get out of here, he says, well, God, but they know what I've done. Like, like look at the credibility I have. I was like them, and, and so certainly, Lord, they'll see that, and they'll welcome me into their homes, they'll love me, they'll treat me well, and everything's going to be all good. God says, actually, they want to kill you. Welcome to the Christian life. It's time for you to leave. And so God persuades him, saying, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. In one sense, you need to hear this. Like, he's saying, go, I have a different mission for you, Paul. You're not going to be the one who reaches all the Jews. You're going to reach the Gentiles. Paul wrongly believed that this radical change in him would convince the unbelieving Jews of the truth of the gospel. God knew better, as is always the case. God always knows better than us. 
here's the point I just simply want to drive home for us. I love when we look at Paul, I love the zeal and the passion he has for sharing Christ wherever he is. Look, he's in Jerusalem, he wants to share Christ. God's going to send him away, he's going to share Christ. It doesn't matter where he is, he simply wants to share Christ. He's so zealous for the gospel, he so loves what God has done for him in his own salvation, he can't help but share it. We need to exemplify this kind of heart. I think also we can learn this, that sometimes God takes us from where we want to be to where He wants us to be. Sometimes we think we know what God wants and we know best, and oftentimes we need to see God is trying to move us in a different direction. God's command to His disciple is still His command for us as His disciples today. We need to go. And would you just follow the example of Paul wherever he has you, wherever he has you. We talk about this so often, but I'm going to beat this till the day I die. Wherever you are, you are a light for Jesus Christ. You don't have to go overseas. You don't have to become a full-time vocational missionary. You just have to have the missionary mindset that is exemplified all throughout the Bible. Wherever you are, be a missionary. Share Christ. Spread the gospel and live the gospel out. The fields are white with the harvest. The workers are few, Jesus said. May we be found amongst the faithful, waver, faithful excuse me, workers with unwavering confidence, obeying the clear calling on our lives to go and make disciples. Lastly, with unwavering confidence, embrace the true confidence. Embrace the true confidence. And it sounds somewhat redundant to say it like that, but I, I hope you'll see the point I want to drive from here. Well, things don't go the way Paul maybe had hoped. Verse 22 says, up to this word they listened to him. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips... Paul said to the centurion who is standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet and be brought Paul, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. They'd had enough. They were angered by Paul's apparent blasphemy. So once again, they want his life. They don't believe he deserves to live. So the tribune takes Paul and trying to kind of get the truth out of him and and figure out what's really going on, he wants to threaten him by torturing him. He wants to beat him and flog him. The the flogging would would look just like it did. By the way, this is likely where they bring him to. They're going to tie him to a whipping pole and they're going to use a whip that is filled on the ends with pieces of glass and sharp pieces of bone. And this likely would have been the very same place that Jesus Christ himself was tied to the whipping post and his body beaten and torn where his very blood was spilled on the ground in that court. 
They want to tear his back apart. And Paul, simply as they're doing this, they're literally spreading him out, his back out to be flogged. He, he kind of looks over, and you can imagine that the grammar here gives us the indication that Paul didn't say this defiantly. In fact, he said it more like a rhetorical question. That's the nature of the, the grammar here. So almost Paul, Paul looks at them and essentially says, um, do you know what you're about to do? Is it lawful? For you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen uncondemned? You know, Paul knows the answer to that question, right? And so does this guy who's about to flog him. The answer is no. It's, it's illegal to treat a Roman citizen like this. And Paul is, is not con- a condemned man. This is a torture method that's reserved for pagans, not Roman citizens. And so this man freaks out and he goes back to the tribune and says, Look, look, do you know about this man? Do you know who he is? And the tribune comes to Paul and, and he wants to ask him some questions. You need to see this. The fact that Paul insinuates rather than stridently asserts his privilege status as a Roman citizen, it indicates that he is still prepared to suffer or die without complaint if it's disregarded. That's the point. That's why Paul asks it the way he does, because Paul's saying, listen, I am willing to suffer the consequences for Jesus Christ. I am not unwilling to die for my faith. Take my life if that's what's required. And so we ask the question in a way to display that. I'm not afraid to die for my faith for what I believe. reminds us that we too need to be willing to suffer the consequences for our commitment to Christ. And we can do so with unwavering confidence like Paul. It's interesting that they want to draw out how he acquired his citizenship. Do you notice that? There's kind of this little game going on where he comes up to Paul and he says, well, um, I, I purchased my citizenship with a large sum of money. How about you? You know, he's trying to level out the playing field here. And Paul's response is as simple, actually, I'm a citizen by birth. And all of a sudden, this guy realizes that he's in a whole lot of trouble. It's not like Paul has just bought this citizenship recently, you know, and maybe this guy can weasel his way out of a potential lawsuit now. No, no. Paul is a legitimate Roman citizen. He actually has more legitimacy as a Roman than this man who's about to beat him. It's really fascinating. See, what's Paul doing? Well, Paul is simply using all means at his disposal to avoid being interrogated by torture. And we just need to understand, some people believe that what Paul is doing here is sinful and wrong. The text doesn't indicate that at all. In fact, it paints it in the opposite light. What Paul is doing is completely right. He's not unwilling to die. He carefully asserts his legal privileges as a Roman citizen, as a law-abiding citizen who is innocent. And he's really making the statement that under the law, I deserve to be set free. You know, I think it's really, really important that we see that we have opportunities to leverage the legal system we live in in this country in a right way, to protect the freedoms that we get to experience. This does not mean Paul is unwilling to suffer or be treated unjustly. It just tells us it's possible to represent the gospel while defending yourself appropriately. I want to encourage you, as I read this section and as they come to this conclusion that what they're doing is wrong, I want to encourage you, I really believe as we we land the, the plane here, we need to see this. We are called to stay the course. I love the picture of Paul here. I mean, he's, he's willing to suffer for Christ, but he's going to stay the course, believing and trusting that God knows what he's doing. Do not lose hope when everything seems like it's coming against you. That's what was happening with Paul. Circumstances weren't going his way. He doesn't lose confidence. He knows that his God is in complete control. 
This is often where our confidence can be really quickly rattled. We think that because we are faithful, everything should be fine, right? I mean, just think about this in different, part, different times in your life. When you're asking, like, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Oftentimes our appeal is, God, haven't I been a faithful Christian, Lord? I've been reading my Bible. I've been praying more. I've been going to church. Like, I got a checklist, like, every week. Don't I deserve something, Lord? Maybe Paul was inclined to think, like, God, how could they not fall on their knees and repent after what I've shared? I shared with them this amazing testimony of how, how awesome you are, how powerful you are. Why aren't they weeping like they did when Peter preached? Oftentimes, we think that faithfulness in the Christian life means that somehow God owes us one. Faithfulness, listen, is not a quick fix to our problems or circumstances. It's not a way of manipulating God to do what we want or to get what we want. Faithfulness is ultimately, listen, Christian, it's a statement about our confidence in God. Our confidence is not in the results. Our confidence is in the Lord God Almighty. And when you place your confidence in the results, you just need to know that it's going to get shattered. When you place your confidence in the outcome of a circumstance that you've been praying for and it doesn't happen your way, it's going to get shattered That's really, really problematic. When your confidence is in the God who is sovereign over the results, it will never be shaken because your God can never be shaken. God is our true confidence. That's what the psalmist says. That's what Paul exemplifies. I mean, repeatedly we read through the scriptures that God is a rock, that God is a refuge. Proverbs 18.10 says that the the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The mighty run, run into it and are safe, right? He is the one that is our confidence. Trust God. He is in control. He is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Right here, what Paul sees potentially, or he could, as problematic, they don't embrace the message, now is going to lead for an even greater opportunity to Paul for Paul to take the stand for Jesus Christ. Do what God has called you to do and let him work in the hearts of the hearers. Take the stand for Jesus with unwavering confidence. Listen, because one day we'll stand not in the courts of man like Paul stood here today or like Jesus was tried under before Paul, but we will stand in the highest court of the universe. We'll stand before the judge of all mankind The one by whom, by the way, true justice is defined. And if we aren't vindicated now in this life, we will certainly be vindicated then. So loved ones, take the stand for Jesus with unwavering confidence so you can stand before him then, that future day, with unwavering confidence. Jesus, you are our great confidence. We confess that to you now. So often, Lord, we find our confidence in the wrong place, and God, our confidence is so easily shaken, and oftentimes it's shattered, Lord, because we have not placed our confidence in you, not fully, not completely. So, Lord, we just confess to you that we are prone to do that. We need your help. God, we declare that you are, Lord, our true justice. You are true life. We find our hope and salvation, Lord, in no other name under heaven but the name of Jesus Christ. God, we pray that we would set our eyes on you, the one who with unwavering confidence lived and died for us, knowing that you would rise again and be exalted to the right hand of the Father in heaven. Father, we pray 
that we too might be willing to live and die for you with the same unwavering confidence. God, make us steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Lord, our hope is in you. You are our rock.